Hope y'all are doing well. We are in the uh, tail end of a time where we are reading the Bible together for this year. And as we're reading the Bible, there are different readings each month. And uh, as we're reading those four, we pick one of those and study through that. So this particular month, uh, well, it's really October. I'm counting this as October. <laughs> We've been reading and studying Jeremiah and Lamentations. Jeremiah and Lamentations. And so we have actually looked at Jeremiah the last three weeks, and today we're looking at Lamentations. And finally, the verse that's actually been on that video the entire time, we're getting to today. So we'll be looking at Lamentations chapter 3. If you're not sure where that is, it's no big deal. You can just um, look for it with your table of contents. But if you kind of go in the middle of your Bible, kind of, uh, you'll find a book called Jeremiah. And right after Jeremiah, it's really short, is a book called Lamentations. And that's where we'll be. Lamentations is a long ver- ver- version of the word lament. And this is just writings where the writer is lamenting or expressing in, in a poetic sadness um, how he feels about the pain and suffering that he's going through. So uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we're going to uh, be in Lamentations 3. I'm, I'm actually going to read the entire thing to us uh, in its 66 verses. But I'm going to read it. I'm going to do a little intro and then read it because I think it's important for you to feel everything because we're not going to be able to obviously look at all 66 verses. So I want you to feel with the writer whom I think is Jeremiah all of the, all of the things that he's feeling and all the things that he's thinking, the raw emotions. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. I thank you for um, difficult texts like Jeremiah and Lamentations that that help everyone, no matter where they are in life, uh, whether they're experiencing suffering right now or one day will, that you have put these things in the Bible as well for us and for our, our good, for us to see that in our, in our deepest times of sorrow, that you are still our source of love and mercy. You are still the source of compassion that we can come to and that you'll help us through these things, God. We know that we live in a broken difficult world because of sin. And these things don't take you by surprise. These things, um, when they happen, are to point us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I've said, we've been going through Jeremiah. And if you were here the very first week, we studied Jeremiah 20. And in Jeremiah 20, where he's tortured because of his work for, for God... Um, he's tortured and put in these kind of twisting stocks. The first kind of six verses is the narrative part. And then seven through, I think, 21 in chapter 20 is the, the poetic uh, outpouring prayer that he feels while he's in that, that torturous time. And it's kind of Jeremiah's dark night of the soul. And the main kind of idea that we took from that is every one of us is going to have a dark night of the soul. It doesn't characterize our entire life as a Christian, but there are going to be nights as believers where um, a tragedy happens in our life. And that particular night, we're just crying out to God, why did this happen? I don't understand. You're sovereign and could have stopped it. Now, those things are normal. As we finish that particular chapter, we realize those things are normal. 
every person who's experiencing high levels of suffering in their life, whenever they're, they're dealing with tragedy in their life, will have those kinds of either moments or nights, but it doesn't characterize their entire life. Their entire life is still one of wholehearted love and trust in, in to, uh, to the Lord. I'm, of course, speaking about Christians. Um, so that particular sermon, this sermon really goes along with that sermon more than the other two. As a matter of fact, I would even say this particular sermon could be the very first part uh, before Jeremiah 20. As, as Before we look to the, Jer- the dark night of the soul of Jeremiah, this particular sermon could go before that as the preface, if you will. Um, this sermon is for everyone who is one day going to go through su- sufferings in their life. If you want to, as a believer, suffer well through that. I'm not saying that we want to love suffering, but I'm saying likely all of us are going to experience some level of tragedy. Um, And for those that will suffer well through this, hearing the things that you're going to hear today will produce in you a life that will suffer well through tragedy. So there's, there's foundational things that you're going to see about suffering before the storm hits in this particular text that will help you whenever you go through it. So this sermon, as I said, uh, is the necessary sermon for people before they go through the storm, before it's too late. Because I, I think if you don't know these things, as you go through the tragedy, it'll be much more difficult to go through it. Uh, now, Lamentations is likely written by Jeremiah. Um, it, he, it is anonymous, but just the wordings that he uses and the way he writes, it's likely written by Jeremiah. That's why it's put right beside the book of Jeremiah. There are... In this, in this book of Lamentations, just amazingly raw, raw emotions. Um, these are, each chapter is kind of its own little chapter, uh, our, our own little poem, and they're emotional funeral poems. And this is the letter he writes. If you remember, I said that um, at one point where the Babylonians came into their city and demolished it, and they were exiled for 70 years, whenever Jeremiah, right whenever the Babylonians came in in 586 and demolished the city, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, it was just a tremendously great loss for the people of Israel. This is the the letter that he writes as he sees his demolished city um, whenever they were exiled. So if you'll notice with me, if you look at Lamentations, um, each chapter, chapter 1, chapter 2, and then chapter 4 and chapter 5 are each 22 verses. If you'll notice, they're each 22 verses. And that's because um, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And so Jeremiah not only is laying out his emotions in a very raw sense, but he's also very poetic. And so each verse of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 5 starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph is verse 1, Bet is verse 2, and keep going. Uh, you, you get the idea of what I'm saying for all 22 verses. However, if you look at chapter 3, chapter 3 is 66 verses. So there's, there's three times the, the uh, information. Because it's longer, it's three times longer. Uh, and you can even notice in your Bible, perhaps, uh, you can see the first three verses are grouped together. And then the next three verses, 4, 5, and 6, are grouped together. And 7, 8, and 9 are grouped together. What he's done here um, is the first three verses, A, or, or I'm sorry, 1, 2, and 3 are kind of the A, A, A. In, in, in Hebrew poetry. And then 4, 5, and 6 are the B, B, B. And then 6, 7, and 8 are the C, 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 if that makes sense. Or, I'm sorry, 7, 8, 9. So he's extra special poetic um, pushings and, and, and strivings in Lamentations chapter 3. So he's done it 
three, three times longer. The reason why is, what's the significance of doing that? Is because in, in Hebrew poetry, the middle contains the most important truths. And so chapter 3 would contain the most important truths that, that Jeremiah thinks. Now, it's not saying the others aren't, but Jeremiah, he, he lengthens chapter 3 and it would contain the most, most important truths. And then you could even say the section... 21 through 39, it's the middle of chapter 3 that even claims, that, that even has more important truths. And then you could even say between 21 and 39, 31 through 33, the middle of the middle, it's, it's containing the most important truths. Hence, that's why it's been on the video the entire time. Um, so it's, uh, it's very, very, uh, very important information, I guess you could say. We'll get to it when we get there. So um, the idea what's going on here in verses 1 through 66 uh, is about suffering. It's about the sufferings that Jeremiah has experienced because in, in 586 the Babylonians came in and destroyed his entire, his entire city and the, and the temple um, and everything that's happening. And whenever suffering comes into our life uh, in, in any of our situations, what, any kind of tragedy or thing, things like that, we, we, we notice that suffering just disorients us in regard to our faith for a, for a moment. Hence why Jeremiah in chapter 20 has this, this dark night of the soul. Suffering, when it hits us, it just disorients us very understandably. Um, but we, we look around and we say, I don't understand what's going on here. And we all will drift to these kinds of questions, usually. Usually we'll drift to, is God against me right now? It, am I doing something so wrong that the Lord has just seen fit that I need this large level of punishment is there a reason why this is happening we, we will all drift to these questions and so limitations especially this particular chapter i think will give you some 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 uh insight so i'm going to read it's lengthy verses 1 through 66 and i want you to I want you to feel the the roller coaster raw emotions that jeremiah is on and notice there's there's moments of just where he turns corners like verse 21 there's a turn of the corner um, you'll see them. Look at ver- verse 1. Um, and you can even notice, if you will, how he changes from first person singular to third person, and he tr- changes back to first person plural, and then he goes back to first person singular, and then he just talks about God at the end. But you'll notice these things. Verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of a long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayers. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in waiting. He turned aside my steps and tore me into pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow. He has set his target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is is 
bereft of peace. I have forgotten. I mean, this is, this is so characteristic of someone who's going in the, right in the midst of tragedy. These words, they say things like, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So you can see, I don't even know what happiness is. I don't even know what it feels like to be happy anymore. I don't even have hope anymore in the Lord. Notice the little shift. I mean, from verse 18 to verse 21 is amazingly shifting. No hope in God. Look at 21. Well, we'll get to it. Remember my affliction and my wonderings. The wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I do have hope. What do I call to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, plural, don't miss that, never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, my, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. The soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke or the discipline in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. And let him put his mouth in the dust. That's an idea of submission. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. And here it is, the crux, the apex, the the centerpiece of all the truths we need to hear. For the Lord will not cast off forever. For though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. To subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not disapprove. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. Let us. Now he's shifting to plural speaking of all of us. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled for you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer could even pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. Remember they were experienced suffering because of their sin. The Babylonians were allowed to come in and destroy their city because they would not return to the Lord because of their sin. That's why he's saying this. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing Without respite until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief. All the fate of my daughters in my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to me when I cry for help. 57, the three words are great. You came near. When I called on you, you said, do not fear. 
You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord. All their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the taunt the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Now he's obviously speaking about the Babylonians receiving this from the Lord. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. So you can, you can feel just the, the depths of how Jeremiah expresses with unbelievable raw emotion how he feels about his city and about his people and about their sin against the Lord. And what we're seeing here is just immense suffering because of sin, because of sin. And so our sufferings might not be exactly because of sin. It might be because of, in the generalist sense, we live in a sinful world in Genesis 3. But we're all, in some level, are going to experience suffering or in the midst of it now. And so what I want you to see here is... It's not an exhaustive list. I wouldn't have enough time to point out all the truths that we need to know. But there are some I want you to see in the text about suffering. That If you know these things as a, as a foundation, there's, there's things that Jeremiah tells us before the storm hits. If we have a settled foundation on some of these things, when we go into the storm, when we go into the tragedy, these things will serve us well and we will suffer well. We will suffer well. So... The first thing is, um, well, I want to make sure you see verses 21. Uh, I pointed it out, but the but there is just, uh, it's almost mind-bending. The shift that he takes in verse 21. I mean, he had just got through saying that his soul is bereft of peace. And he's absolutely forgotten what happiness even feels like. And that he's out of hope. He's out of hope. And so for every one of us, when we're out of hope, there's only one hope we have, which is to teach and preach those things that we should already know. In verse 21, he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So remembering who the Lord is, not just what he's done, but who he is, will be an anchor for us when it comes time for suffering. But here's some things that, that suffering will happen, what will happen for us. In verse 22, it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So it's some truths about suffering that one should know before the storm hits. So when you're gonna go through suffering, knowing that these things will happen when you go through it will, will cause us all to, I think, suffer better. Not that we want suffering. We don't want, we're not inviting it, but we know that if it happens, we, these things can happen for us when we're going through it. The first one is this. Suffering, though not invited, will deepen our knowledge of God. He says he has hope. And then as soon as he says he has hope, what does he say about the Lord himself? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Here we have a scenario where Jeremiah after he has experienced great suffering, is declaring deep truths about God. Namely, he's speaking about the love of God, which is maybe one of the deepest attributes for us to be able to understand about him. His knowledge of God, which about God's love, is now deeper 
because he's experienced suffering. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Jeremiah, in the midst of suffering, is able to experience something about the love of God that he would not have experienced had he not gone through this. And so he's able to have a deeper knowledge of God here because he's experiencing this suffering. Now, surely you'll say to me, no, thank you, Fudd. Can't I just learn knowledge of God a different way? I would certainly rather just study systematic or the Bible and let God use that to teach me the deeper knowledge of things rather than the experiential side of suffering. I'll prefer choice A. Yes, of course we all would. Um, But I'll submit to you, when we're talking about the knowledge of God here, and what I think Jeremiah is referring to, is not deeper Bible knowledge of God, but instead a deeper experiential knowledge of God. That doesn't come through systematic theology. That comes through walking through the valley and having your shepherd beside you. So, verse 22, the reason why I say that is because after he talks about the steadfast of the Lord, never, love of the Lord never ceases, what does he say right after that? He refers to the mercies, plural, and his mercies, his hand walking me through this, never comes to an end. It never comes to an end. And so, his knowledge of God is deeper And he's experiencing more mercies in the suffering because he is willing to walk through it. Notice it's mercies, plural. Hence, they are new every morning. Every morning in the tragedy, I have to have new mercies from the Lord. New mercies as I walk through this or I won't make it today. And so his knowledge of the Lord is deeper. And so you need to know when you're going through suffering, when the tragedy hits and you're going to walk through it, I hate to even use something positive. So I'll say something that will happen. Because we would just say the most positive thing is that it doesn't happen to me. And I would agree. But the deepest things of God, I think, are known. They're experienced. They're understood in the midst of suffering. Whenever we go through it, we will have a deeper knowledge of the Lord on on the outset of it than we would have had ever if we have never gone through it. So when you're going to go through this, this is important. Whenever you're going to go and you're in it, you should say to yourself, I don't like what's going on. Lord, I don't understand. But I do know this. I'll know you in a much more deeper way after this is over. And that I do want. So Lord, help me. Help me seek those mercies every day. That's the first thing. Now, Uh, 29, as I said, through 21 through 39 is the middle of chapter 3. So 21 through 39 is the the apex or the the more important truths, if you will, as we're looking at the entire chapter of 3 and all of Lamentations. And the next thing you're going to see is this. Um, This is the most obvious part of going through suffering and probably maybe one of the the more difficult parts. The second thing. As you can see, it starts right there in 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly. And, I, and I've even put uh, some other verses when I see uh, in verse 23, they are new every morning. Hence, 
it's going to take many, many mornings for, this to, for, for me to get through this. The second one is this. Suffering is largely, suffering is largely made up of waiting. Being patient on God. Would that it be that suffering was only a 24-hour occurrence? Suffering is not, experiencing a tragedy is not a short-lived thing usually. It's long. For people you love that are experiencing suffering, don't tell them, we should just work through this quickly. That's bad advice. Suffering is not something that happens fast. It's largely made up of waiting. Verse 21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Let me say this. Sometimes when we hear the word struggle, we think that it's bad. Someone says, I'm struggling with sin. And we're like, oh, that's, that's a bad thing. The, word, the idea of struggling is a negative thing. Um, that's generally not the case. And especially in some of the old dead guys that write commentaries like Calvin. Struggling is a good thing. Struggling through something means you're actually pouring your life into it and really struggling or wrestling with it, trying to defeat it. It's not like I'm just being overtaken by it. So when we hear the word struggle here, don't hear this in a negative sense. Calvin, in verse 21, talking about, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. If we struggle, if we wrestle, it will surely be a remedy to us, a good thing, because our faith will at length then, through the wrestling, through the struggling, when it's over, our faith will then emerge again. It will come back finally. Our faith will eventually come back and it will gather strength. Yea, it will be a manner raised up from the lowest depths. So that takes a while. What Calvin's saying is, when you go into suffering, there will be these, these moments of struggle and wrestling and you should keep struggling and keep wrestling because when you finally go all the way through it, he says at the end, at the end of that time, we will finally emerge again. It will, it will be over and when that happens, we will gather strength in our faith and it will come out of a, the lowest depths in a manner to be raised up very high. It's, it takes a while though, but we will have hope. We will emerge again. But there's one other thing I want, you to point, I want to point out to you. And I think that this is very difficult for us, for us all. If you see it in verse 25 and 26, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The word that, that repeats in verses 25 and 26 is waiting. It's waiting. Suffering is largely made up of waiting. Being patient. Do this from now on. Anytime you ever go somewhere by yourself and you're in a waiting room, experiment. Sit there and watch the people. And watch how long they are able to wait without having to have something in front of them to, to take their mind off. If you go anywhere with adults, they will have their phone out in less than three seconds. Boom. Got to do something. Check email, text, play a game. It doesn't matter. We are all wired from a very young age, I think, um, and trained not to be able to wait in silence. Not to be able to wait in silence. Think of our church services. Um, 
we, we try to structure church services so that, you know, as soon as the band finishes, bang, we start the video. So right when the video is in, then I'm here. So there's not ever, <laughs> like every church strives, there's not ever this five to ten seconds of, of silence because anytime there's silence, we feel awkward and none of us know what to do. And you can't pull out your phone here because everybody will see you. And it's in church. You're not supposed to do it, right? So uh, we do everything we can to avoid any kind of silence. Silence is to be avoided at all costs. But in this particular text, it is good for those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly. Not wait taking your mind somewhere else. Wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Silence. The best advice that Job's friends gave him, if you know the story of Job, he experienced major suffering, and his three friends, uh, Eliphaz and two other guys, I can't remember their names, Je- no, I can't remember, they came to him, and it says in the end of chapter two, that they sat down on the ground with him and sat in silence for seven straight days. They never said anything. And it says, because they saw his suffering was great. That was the best advice they gave him. Because when they started talking, it was terrible advice the rest of the time. This has happened because you're a sinner. Like, surely something's wrong. If you go back to chapter 1, you know it was because the devil petitioned the Lord, let me destroy him for no reason. The best advice Job's friends gave him was they came and did not speak and sat for seven days of silence. Many older pastors that I've, I've talked to have told me when sitting with someone who is experiencing suffering, most of the time, the best thing that you can do there do is just be there, but not talk. Don't say a word. Don't feel the need to talk. You'll want to say something. It's going to be okay. Romans 8.28. Uh, Genesis 50.20. Like you, you feel like you have to say something. But generally... They say, don't. Sit in silence. What Jeremiah is prescribing to us here, and when I say suffering is largely made up of waiting, being patient on God, what Jeremiah is prescribing, when we're talking about waiting and silence and knowing that we need to be patient, is don't feel compelled to fill the time of suffering with a lot of things that take your mind off the suffering. Instead, In those moments, be patient and think through what's happening. Feel all the feelings of what's going on. Wait on the Lord and let your soul seek him. Let your soul seek his salvation. Let your soul cry out to him. Suffering is largely made up of waiting. So take a step back, second foundation before you're going through. When it comes, know that it will take a while to go through. When it comes, know that for your loved ones, it will take a while for them to go through. And so we are to be patient people, allowing the Lord to do his work in it. Now, we get to verse 31 through 34. This is the middle of the middle of the middle of all the important truths. Verse 31 through 39 Um, especially points us to something. Uh, The Lord will not cast off forever. For those he, though he caused grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of the stead, abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict 
or grieve the children of men. Now, this is, this is very difficult verses. Um, he will show compassion according to the abundance or the multitude of his steadfast love or his steadfast mercies. Uh, for the Lord does not willingly afflict or the Lord does not willingly afflict from his heart to grieve the children of men. This is kind of the fullest, most understanding of those verses. Here's what I want you to see. First one is, it's going to take a while. We need to be patient. But to follow up, number three is this. Suffering is not forever. Suffering is not forever. And as Calvin says, we will emerge. And the good news is, the compassion of God will triumph. His compassion will triumph in us. And that's how we'll emerge you will not emerge by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You will not do it by yourself. The good news is you will emerge. You will come from it because the Lord is compassionate and he triumphs. Now what I want you to see is some things about the Lord. In verses 31 through 39, in those three sections, there's, there's three attributes of God that are highlighted for us that the writer wants us to know. The first one is the love of God, verses 31 through 33. He wants us to make sure we understand the love of God. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love and mercies. He's wanting us to see that the Lord is all loving. These particular three things, by the way, that you're going to see are the three things that all atheists try to take and disarm all your college professors will say, there can't be a God because of these three things. God can't be all loving and all just and all powerful and suffering happy. And these three sections are saying, God's all loving, he's all just, and he's all powerful. And suffering happens. He's warning us to see, and who better than Jeremiah, who's actually someone who's in the midst of the suffering, to be able to point out these things to us. First one, he's all loving. The next one in verses 34 through 36 is he's all just. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. To subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. So here we're seeing not only is the Lord loving and all loving. He's all just. He only operates in the realm of complete and total justice. But... There's more. He's not a weakling on the side just hoping his love and his justice triumph. He's all powerful. Verse 37. You need to make sure you hear verse 30, 38 well. Who has spoken and came into pass unless the Lord has commanded. In other words, nothing. Nothing happens in all the world unless the Lord allows it or brings it about. You don't breathe I don't drive here today, you don't get a job, you don't have giftings, you don't have children, you don't make money, you don't eat today, you don't live your 75, 80 years, nothing. Nothing happens without the Lord allowing it. Who has spoken and it came to pass and the Lord has commanded it? These are the same things that like the Lord says to Job in the end of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Not here, it was me. But then notice verse 38. Um, and we need to be careful here. When we talk about good and bad things coming from God, this is not referring to moral things done 
um, on God's behalf. It's just things in general. Like when a hurricane comes or when a flood comes, that's bad. We, we agree those things are bad. It's not saying that the Lord acts immorally because he's God. And it says, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Why should a, ma- a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? So here we see that God is not only loving and, and just, but he's also all-powerful. Everything that happens, happens because he allows it, allows it to happen. So because of these three things, that he's all-loving, all-just, and all-powerful, because of these, th- these three things, for us, experientially, personally, when we're going through suffering, we can bank on this. The compassion of God is going to triumph for his children. And it, on a grand scale, has already triumphed for us because Christ went to the cross and has vanquished Satan's sin and death for us. And suffering will not be forever because Christ has taken our suffering for us. And the compassion of God will triumph ultimately for those that are his children. And they will experience perfection again in heaven. But in the midst of suffering, we can bank on this, that he is all loving, he is all just, and he is all powerful. He is sovereign. So if we're going to think, I'm going to go into suffering, what's a foundation thing I need to know? You need to know this. Without this, I don't know that you'll make it. I don't know that you'll make it. You have to trust that God is all loving, that God is all just, and God is all sovereign or all powerful. If you don't believe those things going into suffering, it might overtake you. I can't imagine going through suffering without belie- in the belief that God is sovereign. I can't even imagine it. And again, this is coming from Jeremiah. This is coming from someone who is in the midst of suffering. And he points us to these three things about God. Now, I'm not saying, verse 39, it says, why should a man complain about the punishment of his sins. We need to be careful here in verse 39. I'm not saying that all suffering we experience is because of sin. There will be occasions where there are times when we go through suffering and it is because of sin, but not always. Sometimes it happens because of sin, sometimes it doesn't. So this next section, I want to put that out there. When we talk about uh, confession, that it doesn't necessarily mean confession of sin. It can just mean confession of absolute need. So the fourth thing is this. Fourth thing that you're going to experience is this. Suffering will involve confession. Suffering will involve confession. What do I mean? It will involve these things. It will involve perhaps you're suffering because of sin. Then it will involve a confession of sin. But perhaps you're not suffering because of sin you've done, but just because we live in a Genesis 3 world, suffering will involve a confession of a need for God, a confession for absolute dependence, a confession for absolute, um, it will will involve a confession of, I have the, it's impossible for me to survive now without you, God. It will involve a confession, God, I have the inability to go on unless you come and cause me and bring me through this. I will not make it. That's still confession. A confession of absolute dependence. But either way, there will be a confession 
time where we will say we have to have you. You can see here what, in a lot of ways, what confession can look like. Again, this is Jeremiah confessing because of sin, but pull the principles out if it's not because of sin, but it's just because of an absolute dependence in 40 through 48. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. That's the, I need to come back and confess. I need you. I have to return to you. So suffering involves a moment's Through that long time of I have to come back and return. Return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgotten. So this is for those who need to confess their sin. And they will say things like you've wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us. Killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud. I mean this is amazing language that Jeremiah uses the phrase of cloud for in the Old Testament which we're in, but in in Exodus, the cloud at one point, cloud of fire, cloud of, uh, the the pillar of fire, the cloud at night, or whatever, the opposite, cloud during the day, pillar of fire at night, was once a picture of God's presence with with them, his, his sustaining power presence with them, bringing them out of the Exodus, and what was a picture at one point of God's presence with them in a positive manner. He's actually here saying, you have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. In the same way that picture, which once was of deliverance from the exodus, now from the exile, this picture of the cloud is a picture of, we can't be with you. We don't have your presence. So it's just, it's no accident that he uses cloud. In the exodus, it was a positive thing. But in the exile, here, it's a negative thing because they feel like their, their prayer can't get through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. So again, this is all characteristic of confession, but confession of sin. But I think the next verse is characteristic of us all. Confession of sin or confession of just, I need you. This is what it looks like. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Suffering will involve deep, heartfelt emotions. You'll be broken because of your sin and your eyes will flow or you'll be broken because of the tragedy you're going through and your eyes will flow. Either way, the result of that for us, one thing you should know should happen is that there should be confession. Don't neglect confession in the midst of suffering, whether it be of sin or just, Lord, there's no way I'm going to make it through this without you. You have to come and be my savior. You have to come and be my shepherd. Another one comes in verse 55. Suffering will reassure us of God's presence. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. If you're in the tragedy, this is how you feel. This language is not too over the top for you. This isn't, well, gosh, Jeremiah, you're really painting the worst picture. When you're going through it, you might even use worse language from the depths of the pit. I mean, this is as low as he can feel. But what does God do? Leave him there? I called on you, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. And what did the Lord do? He heard me. He heard me. But not only did he hear me, verse 57, you came near. 
we need to experience this. When going through suffering, you need to know that there is going to be a reassurance of God's presence. So here's the fifth one. Suffering will reassure us of God's presence. As you go into these things and you experience number four, confession, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is good. The Lord is just. The Lord is compassion. Mercies every day. The Lord is sovereign. And the Lord hears us and doesn't just hear us, but he comes near. He comes near. Calvin says this. Well, God comes to his children in such a manif... This isn't Calvin. This is just me. Um, it, Calvin's will be better. God comes to his children in such a manifest way in the times of his suffering. He comes in such a real way that his help to his children is amazingly profound. Calvin says, you came near. God indeed supplies us with reasons for hope when he wants and again aids us. It is the same as though he testified that he will always be there and he will always be the same. He demonstrates to us that he is absolutely supplying our every need continually in the midst of suffering. So one of the greatest gifts from God that we can receive in the midst of suffering. I'm going to say that again because that sounds like an oxymoron. Gifts from God in the midst of suffering. How does that happen? One of the greatest gifts from God that we can receive in the midst of suffering is the reassurance of his presence with us. And when you're in the depths of the pit, you need that. You need the reassurance that the Lord is with you. Especially when it feels like, and usually this is the case for everyone, you're all alone. I don't know anybody that's experiencing suffering that doesn't usually feel like they're all alone. No one experiences the suffering more acutely and more painfully than the one who's really going through it. Those that are around it can only experience it to some level. But they experience it to such a high level, usually they feel like they're all alone. And because they feel like they're all alone, this fifth thing is huge. He reassures you of his presence. The last one, um, comes from verse 58 and following. And of all the things, I don't know that this is, well, I don't like saying that one's better than the other. I'll just say this is my favorite. <laughs> verse 58. Well, I'll go ahead and read it. Suffering will teach us deeper things about the gospel. Suffering will teach us deeper things about the gospel. Notice the language that he uses in verse 58. And I want to read this again. The FF, by the way, means and following, if you're wondering what that means. Verse 58, it just means start at 58 and just keep going. Um, I want you to hear these verses, but I want you to think of it in a slightly different way. Yes, it's about Jeremiah expressing his painful thoughts about the destruction of Jerusalem because of the hand of the Babylonians. But I want you to hear verses 58 and following, about just hear it, try to hear it from the perspective of Christ on the cross, experiencing suffering for his people on behalf of his people, taking on the wrath of God. 
It's not what it is, but just hear it from that perspective for a second. And then you'll hear how suffering can teach you about deeper things about the gospel. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. I had a cause. I'm a sinner, a desperate sinner, a beggar looking for bread. And you are the one who makes bread and continually gives. You are the one that can take up my cause and cause a change. Only you can do it, Jesus. And what did you do? You didn't leave me in my sin. You took up my cause. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. Now, obviously that would be the wrong that I did. Judge me. See that I'm a sinner and then come and take my place. You have seen all their vengeance and all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Picture the lips and, and assault, uh, thoughts and assailants all against Christ as he's on the cross and how he hears it. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I'm the object of their taunts. Christ was the object of taunts for us. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. And as Isaiah tells us, the Lord's hand does repay, but he puts all of it on Christ for us. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. Christ took the curse for us. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Christ was destroyed under the heavens on the cross by the wrath of the Father for us on our behalf. So here's what I mean. Absolutely here, Jeremiah is talking about God's work against the Babylonians for destroying Jerusalem. However, in a very real, real way, God does this for us in our suffering. Especially when our suffering is done for righteousness sake. When we're experiencing suffering for Christ's sake. For maybe martyrs or something like that. But even bigger, in a bigger picture, suffering teaches us about the gospel. It teaches us about the gospel. Let me tell you how. In the New Testament, it's, it is quite different from the Old. There's not a whole lot of lamenting in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, one commentary pointed out, the primary lamenter in the New Testament is Jesus. He weeps over his city because of their unbelief. He loved his people so much. When he goes to the city, he weeps because they wouldn't come. He weeps and cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane because he does not want to have to go through this. One, commentary said, one commentator says, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the posture to the prayers and the lamentations, similar in the sense that one resolutely casts his or her fate into the hands of God who seems absent at the moment of great need. In the same way, when someone's going through suffering and they're casting all their hope on the Lord and they're saying, you seem absent right now in my moment of great need. That's how Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. Similar in the sense that he resolutely then just casts all of his fate into the hands of God who in that moment seems to be absent but isn't. But what is clear is that he was never absent. And what's clear for us when we go through it is that he never was absent. Another way that Jesus is the primary lamenter, he weeps and cries out on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is him quoting Psalm 22, which is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament. 
The voices of lament in the New Testament come from Jesus, primarily from Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, God has demonstrated decisively that he is for his people. The greatest demonstration that God is for his people is Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for us. And there is no greater demonstration that we need to look to than that. And he who would go willingly, willingly to suffer for us when we're going through our own bit of suffering, the greatest demonstration that Jesus is for us in our suffering is to look at the sufferings that he willingly went through. And despite of continuing judgment, God showed that his plans cannot be thwarted and he will save. Suffering teaches about the gospel because of this. God has destroyed our greatest enemy, sin. Satan, sin, and death. And in Christ, on the cross, our suffering is wiped away because he suffered for us. And in the same way, our suffering in this temporal world will also be wiped away. The reason why there's no more tears in heaven There's no more suffering in heaven is because Jesus Christ was crucified. And so that's how suffering points us to the gospel. In our suffering, we can understand more the sufferings of Christ on the cross. When we're going through the the depths, when we say, I am in the depths of the pit, we have a new understanding of the depths of the pit because Jesus willingly endured and went to the depths of the pit for us so that we might be saved. Oh, the love of Jesus for us that he would willingly go to the depths of the pit. So when we cry out from there, we need to realize that he has also been there for us. And it teaches us about the gospel. One commentary says, in depicting God as strong in anger and judgment, the book of Lamentations takes its place in an unfolding revelation that points us to a God who is more strongly resolute, not just to be anger and judgment against sin, but also more so strong and resolute to save. He saves us from our sin. Calvin says this to, to conclude as he's looking at verse 58 in particular. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. Calvin says, God is such a pleader of our cause that he is also a deliverer. He's so much so a pleader for our cause when he stands at the right hand of the Father pleading our cause that he is the actual deliverer as well. Christ is amazing. God has taken up our cause, which is our sin, and redeemed our life. And so as you're going through suffering, as you're in the midst of it, and it's long, and you're patiently going through it, and you're called to feel it, realize that you will know much more deeper things about the gospel. The Christ who willingly suffered for us on our behalf. We're going to go in a time of worship here. And as we sing this first song, we're going to sing out words that say, you never leave my side. 
And I just invite you to stand and worship with us and let these words we sing be the echo of what would be the depths of your heart's cry in the midst of suffering. Teach yourself to sing these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that in the midst of our sufferings, you're there. You're so good to us. And every single one of us, God, would want an easy life, free of suffering. And if that's what your hand would bring about, then that's what it is. But we do know for those who build their house on the sand or those who build their house on the rock, the storm still came. And so, Lord, may we build our house on the foundation of the rock. And when the storms come and beat against us, we're still standing. Not because of us, but because of you. You never leave our side. We pray this in Jesus' name.